You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello, and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey. With Jason and Noah Amanda today, she is taking care of little ones. She's got having a good time with all the little kids today, so... Today, you just get me. So, what I'm here to do today is to talk to a very interesting fellow, Mr. Jonathan Joseph. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing wonderfully today. I had a very restful holiday weekend. I hope you and all of your listeners also did as well. We've got the first uh, few snow flurries up here in the Northeast, where I am right now. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to be here and excited to share some of my story as an adoptee with your audience. Adoptee, being an adult adoptee now, um, you have a perspective that I can't really give to anybody. I don't have that. It was not part of my childhood. It wasn't in my family necessarily, anything like that. I have no real experience with that coming through it as a child. And so you have a perspective on this whole thing that most of us don't have. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the, uh, into the, the system of being a, a, a kid who needed to be adopted? Sure, I can definitely uh, sort of reverse engineer how that all took place to my knowledge, which, you know, interestingly enough, I think being an international adoptee um, definitely made it somewhat more of a challenge to find out the who, what, when, where, why, and how of my origin, so to speak. Uh, you know, I was, I'm 35, so I was uh, born in 1986 in Medellin, Colombia, uh, when it was like the world's most dangerous city. Thank you, Pablo Escobar. Uh, so, um, you know, I, for, to my knowledge, uh, was, you know, uh, birthed in a hospital to my mother. My birth mother's name was Patricia, um, or Patricia. And uh, she promptly, you know, waived her parental rights and had me taken to an orphanage as soon as I was born because she uh, seemingly did not feel that she could adequately care for me. And so she thought that that was the best course of action for her and for me. Uh, and so I was at an orphanage for the first nine months of my life. Uh, when I was around six months old, that is when my adoptive parents met me. Uh, they met through a colleague of my father's who had adopted uh, a boy named Michael from the same orphanage. And they had had a really positive experience, you know, um, with international adoption and the process and the attorney that they had used. Uh, my parents uh, wanted to adopt because they were unable to have children on their own. My mother um, had a, a very long uh, battle with metastatic breast cancer uh, that then became bone cancer later in life. Uh, she passed away when I was 19. But uh, as relates to why they adopted, you know, the radiation made her unable to have children. So they pursued adoption uh, and wanted to find someone that they knew that had a really positive experience. They did that with, you know, in my father's colleague. Uh, they found that. 
and uh, as a result, they came to know my orphanage and then came to visit around when I was, I believe, uh, roughly six months old. And uh, then, of course, as these things go, especially for the 80s, uh, there were a couple months of back and forth and paperwork. And, you know, the inter- anyone who's been through it, the international adoption process is a rigmarole for sure. Um, it was definitely additionally challenging because my mother was adopting as someone with a, with a terminal illness, um, which definitely made things a bit more complex for sure, uh, but they were successful and boy, did they get their hands full. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to ask, do you know anything about the orphanage that you were placed in when you, when you were first born? Because I know a lot of those early childhood experiences really do matter. They really do affect kids. If you're in an, in an orphanage where it's kind of thrown together as kids in cribs and that's it until somebody comes along and they hand you off and you, you more or less get a bottle shoved in your face every time you cry and a diaper change when it's time? Or or do you know if it was something um, that had some more personal one-on-one attention where you receive some of that, that contact that's really healthy? Well, so from my understanding, it was definitely uh, the former rather than the latter. It was a, a, the name escapes me and it's on the tip of my tongue. And I will probably randomly shout it out later when it comes to me. Um, but uh, it is apparently still around. Uh, it's gone through a couple of renamings, um, but uh, it was run by a convent. A bunch of nuns uh, ran it and Colombia being a Catholic country, there is no shortage of nuns. So um, you know, it was a very, from what I'm told, it was a very clean, well-kept facility, but you know, given the number of orphans that they were dealing with was definitely not as hands-on as it could have been. Um, Additionally, you know, as an adoptee who had, um, you know, developmental issues, I have a toxic cerebral palsy. So I was, you know, a special needs adoptee uh, as well. Um, So, you know, now when we talk about things like a toxic cerebral palsy, we know just how important those, you know, those first year interventions um, really can be. And although the first nine months of my life, obviously um, I wasn't receiving any sort of specialized care um, relative to my CEP, wasn't seeing neurologists or any of that. Um, you know, as soon as my parents um, got me, procured me, whatever you want to say, uh, you know, they imported me maybe. Uh, they, first person I met in the United States, other than, you know, a customs official slash border official slash passport person uh, was a physician and an eye doctor. Uh, and so, you know, it, there was kind of a lot of catch up for my adoptive parents to do when they got me because of those issues with cerebral palsy. Um, it's non-degenerative, but it is one of those things where the earlier you do do interventions like like braces and other things, um, obviously every case is different. I was very lucky. My CP uh, is very mild in terms of, uh, you know, the scale of like one to 10, it's, it's definitely on the lower side, which is a blessing. Um, but I will say, you know, again, the first people I really met in the United States were all either medical professionals or, or, or vision professionals in that sense, not to say that vision professionals aren't medical, but, um, you know, as for the minute they got me, boom, glasses, uh, leg braces, eye patch, whole nine yards. So, uh, you know, I'm very lucky in that um, for many adoptees that I've spoken to that have CP or other, um, you know, disabilities, it's often much more of a struggle to get adopted in the first place. Uh, and, you know, given the state of Medellin, Colombia in 1986, um, who's to say how that would have gone had I not been adopted? Uh, I don't like to live in a world of what ifs. 
Um, but it is definitely something that I think of often in terms of at least gratitude, um, you know, for being lucky enough to at least have not had that particular issue. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Because it sounds like, like you understand how to, how to, how to find the gratitude, even in the harder things. That's, um, that's something that a lot of us, a lot of us struggle with. And so what talks to that learning, you know, going through life, you, you've had an oh boy. Life. Yeah, so what hasn't taught that? me that might be a better way to put it because I mean, you know, when you grow up with a disability like cerebral palsy where it's kind of obvious, <laughs> you know, especially as a kid, because what, you know, as an adult with CP, um, you don't really see my disability. It's largely invisible. You know, I don't have a, a wheelchair. I don't have um, visible muscle spasticity or, you know, muscle tonia. Um, however, as a child, definitely was obvious slash visible, uh, whether it was the leg braces, the AFO braces, the uh, eye patch um, for the amblyopia, which was partially due to the CP. Um, you know, gratitude comes in many forms. And I think through my life, uh, one of the key things is, you know, I always knew, I, I never knew my adopted mother not battling cancer, for example. So when you watch your primary caregiver and your mother going through rounds of chemo, radiation, surgery, whatever it may be at the time, um, that gives you one form of perspective. I also think I, you know, both of my parents, uh, my mother is Italian Irish from New York City, very classic, like, uh, you know, Irish Italian New Yorker. My father is uh, Iranian from Tehran and uh, both of them grew up pretty damn poor. So it was very much a thing that sort of, you know, you hear stories, right? So you need to be grateful that you have this roof over your head and these other things, because when I was your age, insert thing here, right? So my father's thing would be, you know, my sister and I, we had one pencil and one side was red and one side was blue, you know, and these kinds of things where you have XYZ, Jonathan, you should be really grateful that you have XYZ because just a few short decades ago, we did not have XYZ. So that's one thing. And then again, I think as an adult, an adoptee, uh, and let me preface this by saying, I did not find out I was adopted until I was about 11, 10 or 11. Uh, and it was mentioned to me very casually as my father was like cutting the lawn. It's kind of this like off the cuff thing. And I was like, oh, okay, guess that's a thing. Um, now, as a result, I didn't necessarily grow up knowing that I was adopted and having gratitude in that sense. Um, but as soon as I found out I was adopted, it was one of those things where it was like, wow, that could have ended much more, di way differently, you know? Uh, when I think adult adoptees, um, we have a unique sort of construct of time just by virtue of the conventional way of things being different for us. And so for me, uh, my childhood, you know, there was like phase one, everything is the way it is. Phase two, oh, actually, maybe not. Maybe it's not exactly how it looks. Oh, I mean, I know I look like my adoptive parents, but like that's a fluke, you know? Uh, and so, uh, once I found out I was adopted, then it was kind of like I had a new veneer of gratitude that was just a completely different flavor uh, than what I had built up before. Before it was gratitude by virtue of, you know, uh, not having to have had the struggles that my parents had. And then combine that with finding out you're adopted. And it's like, oh, okay, not only did I benefit from A, B, C, and D, but 
those could have completely been a non-starter and I could still be in an orphanage today. Who knows? Uh, you know, especially at 11, when you're 11, 10, 11, you find that out, you're like, oh, I could still be there, maybe. Y you know, um, and the Lord knows there are plenty of older children at orphanages that do have that very issue where they're, they're wondering if, if and when they'll ever find their, their um, forever family. And so, you know, uh, how can you not be grateful after sort of having that realization? Well, I'm just going to say I have teenagers. I've had lots of teenagers in my house and they'll find a way not to be grateful sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, give them a break. Their prefrontal cortex is still, you know, gelatinous. Not literally, yes. but you know what I mean. <laughs> More or less. <laughs> it's pudding in there most days. <laughs> yeah. I, my, sure. my oldest son is, um, he is 23 now. And and uh, it's, it's amazing to look at him and watch him sometimes and like, wow. You have like almost the whole brain and it's all operating at the same time. I'm so impressed, <laughs> bud. <laughs> Walking and chewing gum. Oh yeah. He's actually for a twenty-three-year-old kid, I'm just gonna say he, he's been off to the off to the military and did his time there. He's out and he's already bought his own house. And I'm like, okay, wow, you're doing way better than I did. I'm not gonna make too much fun of you at this point because <laughs> you did the smart stuff. Because all the mistakes I made, I tried to to push him in a little bit different direction. And and so now he's at twenty-three. He's a homeowner, and I'm like, yeah, all right, way to go, dude. You're you're killing it because I didn't have that at that point. You know, we 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 had kids very at his age. Already had kids at 23 i think i think we had at least three kids we were raising at that point Ooh. and so yeah yeah we were young parents that's so nice. yeah that that whole prefrontal cortex not being fully developed thing yeah I, i'm i got a pretty good example of it in my own story <laughs> but okay so you have a irish and italian mother mm -hmm. a iranian father you were yes. born in Colombia and adopted into the United States. Yes. Holy cow. But my, and my mother, and those were my adopted mother and father. So that's like transracial identity. Uh, I was raised Irish, Italian, Persian, you know, um, but to my knowledge, both of my birth parents were Colombian. So. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a lot of different pieces to pull in and at 11 years old, because like I said, we've had a lot of teenagers and I know that at 11 years old, um, I see a lot of my kids around 11 hit that preteen thing where their their ability to really grasp the world around them kind of falls apart. It's a point, especially young boys. Um, there's a testosterone wash that happens over half of the brain, from what I understand, and it damages one side of the brain, which is why we tend to be more left brain and you know and all that good stuff. But the brain damage is real at 11 year old boys, and so for your dad to have just casually mentioned the adoption at 11. How did that hit you? I mean, did that really, was that hard uh, for you or or did, how did you walk through that safely? Well, as I, as I recollect it now, 20 something years later, um, I took it with rather like a sort of forgiving view in the sense that he dropped it very casually, you know, as I mentioned, and I sort of looked at him and was like, oh, okay. So you decided to mention this now because why? uh he was like well i thought you should know and i was like okay well i do I'm gonna go inside now and not cut the grass because i'm gonna process this uh you know kind of a thing and uh i just remember being simultaneously confused but not and what i mean by that is in the present moment i was like holy hell what is reality but like two-thirds of me was also like this doesn't shock me 
I I always had this sense of knowing that that was the case without objectively knowing it. You know, I, I look similar to my parents and people assumed I was their biological child who didn't, weren't close to them and didn't know. Uh, and it is clear, was clear to me then also that, you know, growing up, people were definitely told, don't tell Jonathan that he's adopted, you know, kind of a thing, because uh, no one ever let on in any way. And it was very interesting because at the time, uh, it caused really no issue. I wasn't, it didn't cause me to like rebel, act out, whatever. I, I just kind of sat with it because what are you going to do? Um, and then as I got older and people knew that I knew, there were certain, you know, certain elements of my father's family who would say certain things, you know, because for lack of a more diplomatic way to put it, uh, many in the Iranian community are very insular and tribal. Uh, it's just a cultural thing. It's part of the cultural milieu. So there were, you know, certain cousins who might say like, oh, you're not really Persian or you're not really this or that. You're not really a family. Now, granted, they were immediately reproached and like people were not having that, especially like family elders. They were not about that. So, um, you know, but it was one of those things that at the time, again, just kind of was reality. I just kind of took it in stride. I, I, it is not until I was much older that I realized sort of how big of a deal it was to just kind of casually drop that on someone. Uh, because for me, it was just the way reality unfolded, uh, you know? And I mean, I came out as like queer uh, when I was, 14. So I got them back like three years later with the, you know, truth bombs. So it was. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, well, so how did that really affect? Because I know that 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 can, can, depending on the community that your family is from, you know, I don't know that much about the, the Persian community, but I'm going to assume that there's probably at least some elements of that, that, that really look down on, on any kind of, um, non-normative uh you know heterosexual yeah, type yeah. approach and and ca irish catholic I, I could i could see that having some issues yeah. i mean uh you know didn't really get much pushback from the extended family because they were they didn't really give me much pushback on on that front um my father definitely had a lot of issues with it and processing it and dealing with it and handling just that fact of my life. Um, you know, I think in terms of sort of watershed moments in my relationship with my parents and, uh, you know, coming out was definitely one of them. Um, my mom and I were definitely sort of like the duo. I was definitely a mama's boy uh as a kid and I came out to her first and then she's like we're just not going to tell your father right now it's just we're going to figure out how to do that uh sort of a thing so she was fine with it he was a fair you know he's a Persian man born in Tehran in the 40s so you know that carries with it a very certain set of, of social mores and, and conventions and honestly it took him probably the better part of 20 years to like fully get over it now he's fine uh and you know but in the interim definitely said some things that as a developing adolescent were very traumatizing and definitely not beneficial in any way uh to him they were a tuesday uh you know, you know uh as these things sometimes go uh but i think truthfully that 
having had to deal with the loss of my mother when I was 19 uh, to cancer and sort of everything that followed, that helped him get over it because he realized he didn't really have a choice for lack of a, a better way to put it. Um, I think that he realized that, you know, I'm his kid regardless. Uh, and so, you know, he knew he had work to do on his end um, to, to deal with that. And so he tried uh, and it just took him however long it took him. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, you're about you're about nine years younger than I am. And so I'm just going to guess I don't think it really matters what country or culture you grew up in. Uh, if you grew up when I did, um, that would have been through the, you know, late 80s, early 90s, that would have been that would have been really difficult in my world growing up in the in the, the Midwest. And in, in that time frame, do you think it was any easier seeing as as coming into the 2000s? We we had a little bit of a cultural shift, perhaps, where people were more. I, I mean, we did, but also we didn't in the sense that hindsight is always 2020 and it's kind of easy to sort of retroactively paint a rosier picture than maybe was the case. I grew up in a small town in Connecticut. It's very lucky that my mother's family is New Yorkers because I spent a lot of time outside of the bubble that is Fairfield County, Connecticut. Um, so as a result, I sort of had a more, for lack of a better way to put it, cosmopolitan view on and all things pretty much. Uh, so no, it was definitely not easy in a small town in Fairfield County, Connecticut, that is 99.8% Irish Catholic. Uh, you know, uh, to do that. I mean, Matthew Shepard was killed just a couple months before I came out of the closet. I came out in, when I was uh, 14, when I was a freshman in high school. Um, so, you know, that was 1999 slash 2000. So it's right at the, the turn of things. Um, and, you know, I, I jumped right into being an activist and I was working with the Connecticut Educators Association, the Anti-Defamation League. I was uh, doing, you know, keynote speeches and uh, teacher in-service days to spot homophobia in the classroom and how to de-escalate those situations. Uh, so I jumped right in to sort of the mix. And one thing, it was kind of a trial by father. Wow, that was a good Freudian slip. It was a trial by fire for my father because I was 14. I did not have a permit. I did not have a license. I was still in the land of mom, dad, can you take me where I got to go? You know? So I was getting booked for these speaking engagements and I will never forget this one, the first one, usually my dad would just like drop me off and like, let me, you know, he didn't really ask too many questions. It was just like, oh, you're going to go do something, you know? Uh, but for one of them, he, the place where they had it had like weird parking rules uh, and so uh, the parking was like really far from where I had to be and I remember he came he said oh, I'm gonna park and I'll come in I said oh, okay uh, <laughs> you know kind of like a short jam moment and uh so he comes in and I you know um as is with a case with most convention center type places, you know, you have sort of the main hall where the speech and thing is going to happen. And then outside it's like a lobbyish thing. So he's sitting in the lobbyish thing and the woman who had hired me for, to, to give this keynote to, um, an, to some educators, uh, sort of accosted him, I guess, while I was delivering said, said talk. And I came out and, you know, we leave, go on our merry way, we get in the car. And he says, you know, the woman, Michelle, she said that, you know, I'm never gonna have to worry about you because you are so articulate and are so passionate and 
I have no idea what you're doing with any of this stuff, but it's clearly good. So I'm trying to figure it out. It was kind of like his first sort of like crack in the veneer, so to speak. Uh, you know, I can definitely hold him accountable for some of the negative things, but I do have to give him credit where credit is due in his own way for where he came, came from. Um, it was not, that was definitely not an easy conversation for him to have. And I just remember on his face, that's sort of like, I could watch him sort of doing the calculus of reality, uh, like as he was, as he was experiencing that. But years later, uh, you know, he would tell that story to people and be like, you know, I didn't understand any of this, but then he gave this talk and this woman came out and she spoke to me while he was speaking. And apparently whatever she said to him was very helpful in at least getting rid of that sort of generational inertia about the, the coming out thing. Uh, and it became a little easier for him. You know, that was around when he stopped, you know, trying to find shrinks that would tell him they could fix me and all that. I mean, he tried, they tried that, that whole rigmarole, like go to a couple shrinks to see which one will tell you what you want to hear and none of them did. And so that didn't work out in their favor. It was just a hassle. Um, so moral of that story, um, no shrink is going to turn your kid straight. So congratulations, <laughs> you, knew, you figured right? out what we already knew, you know, um, <laughs> Yeah, but in that time frame, you know, I, I growing up in that time frame, I I know that that was that was a big thing in, in culture at that point. We were at a point where where culture was, I think, in in the birth pains of some some change there, and it was, oh, it was yeah. just something you didn't see very much of. Um, you know, so how how did your your race play into your childhood? Because I mean, having that's so many question. pieces, right? There's a lot of pieces there. Did well, you? Well, that's a good problem? question. I mean, on the one hand. It didn't, in the sense that because I was often viewed as my adoptive parents' biological child, my mother is white, my father is a flavor of brown. So I was already perceptively not white in a small town uh, that had plenty of Confederate flags popping around it. So, um, you know, my race race is always such a complex thing, I think, to anyone who's transracially adopted. Uh, I think that there's also a division to be drawn between like race and ethnicity, where I view myself as multi-ethnic, but I, uh, race-wise, you know, I consider myself Hispanic. According to Ancestry.com, I have a little bit of white in there, so like we could say biracial in that regard. Uh, and I'm sure being you know, the colonial history of Colombia, it's Spanish white, you know, European Spanish white um, mixed with, you know, in, uh, Colombian. So I never really thought about my race. And then when I sort of became Hispanic, and I'm going to put that in air quotes so, and say that so your listeners understand what I mean, uh, it was a very interesting experience. And the reason for that is growing up in a place like Fairfield County, and I grew up riding horses, which was something that was therapeutic for my CP. That was like how I got into it. But then I was actually kind of good at it. So then I did the show jumping and the whole night. Uh, and that is a world where, especially at that time, and most anything that deviates from sort of, you know, Brenda flavored whiteness um, is not the best thing. Or at least that is the cultural milieu that you're within. And so being around 11, getting that bit of information, then being in those environments, you know, I noticed, oh, it was okay for me to be like the, the 
racially ambiguous kid whose dad, you know, had a PhD and was educated, so he was okay. Like he he checked the like model minority box for racist white people. So it was okay for that. But then when I found out I was Hispanic, it was like you'd still hear, you know, racial epithets or uh, and not not necessarily directed at me, but that I would hear it within my immediate environment. Uh, not from my parents, of course, uh, but from just other people in orbit, as it were. Uh, and so, you know, I started having these thoughts of like, okay, so what am I? What is race anyway? What does it mean to me? And I realized that none of it mattered. <laughs> very, I was very young when I kind of said, screw it. Um, you know, from my experience, I'm like a giant melting pot of a person. Uh, and that is a complex reality for a lot of people to digest, but they don't need to digest me and spit me out if you don't like it. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? And so uh, I didn't really think of race in those terms. I think of right when I thought of race as a kid, it never had to do with finding out I was adopted or like after that, um, you know, my most vivid memories of race as a child have to do with you know my father getting harassed for being Persian and like being called a terrorist and having the cops come because some crazy lady down the street said that he was a terrorist and he wasn't she just was insane you know it and had like a personal axe to grind and so she weaponized her whiteness in order to cause a problem for him um so you know I I that was sort of my understanding of race in that regard uh you know I understood implicitly that you could, if you were perceptively white, you could weaponize that whiteness if you so chose. Um, and if you were any flavor of brown, someone may choose to weaponize their whiteness against you. Um, and that's just, a, to me, that was part of living in this world that we live in, where there will always be bad actors and there will always be people who do horrible things and hold aberrant views that are rooted in fear and hate and bigotry and prejudice and all of those things. And it's just up to us to not, to anyone who is of a, a marginalized, you know, ethnic group or minority of any kind to not internalize it and to be really uh, diligent about when you're in those situations, separating your sense of self from how that self is perceived within society. And I think that's a skill I gained not only by virtue of my, you know, my adoptive parents, not only by virtue of finding out I was adopted and also like another minority in the like column, but also just in terms of even my queerness, you know, being part of the LGBTQ community. It's a, it's a skill you pick up where you, where I think some of us get it wrong, right? Some of us uh, overdo it. Some of us become hyper protectionist over ourselves and, 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 and turn too far inwards and, and it becomes toxic and, 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 and negative. And I think it behooves those of us who have a voice, who are articulate like myself um, to sort of stand there and say, it doesn't have to be that way. You can, just, you can just be, right? It doesn't have to be this whole drawn out thing. You can just exist and that is enough. You know, it's, I really identify with a lot of what you're saying because I've, I've always referred to myself as ambiguously brown. Because if you look at my parents, my parents both look very, very white. I, I'm just going to say that. And I have siblings. Three of my siblings look very much like me. Um, my sister doesn't have near the beard that I do. And, and my younger brother, he's not as good looking, but he's pretty close. <laughs> pretty close. <laughs> we, we're pretty similar. There's no doubt that we are biologically related in that, in that sense. 
And then we have an older sister who looks very much like my parents. And I have pushed on that question quite a bit of times over the years. I'm like, are you sure, like, biologically speaking, we're all related? Because it doesn't look the same. And after some uh, doing some, because I, I remember all three of my siblings being born, my or my, my two younger siblings being born, obviously, my older sister, I did not. Um, but so I know that I know that there's a biological connection from us. I, I, I remember that happening. But, uh, but I did the, the, the 23 and me test, I believe. And my brother did the other one, the ancestry one, just because like DNA wise, I was always told our family was German. Now, I don't, I'm not sure about, about you, but from my understanding of what the, the German look is, I, I don't necessarily fit the stereotype there for sure. And, um, and so I scratched my head and wondered, I did 23 and me, which my results came back and it was basically a circle over Europe. And it said, yes, all of this. <laughs> ironically like 10 percent of it or, or something like that was scandinavian and i thought wait a second those folks are all very 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 white <laughs> and that's not my family here um but my old my second oldest son he is like six foot five he's as pale white as my wife who is very irish and i'm like and he's got a red beard i'm like okay maybe there is some scandinavian in there somewhere <laughs> I can see it. Um, but but having had all those different parts and pieces, you, I remember 2000. I remember 2001 when the, the Trade Center attacks happened. I remember what the world did at that point. And I was told to go back to my own country at a couple points, which really may have struck me a little bit wrong. I was fresh out of the military and still kind of pull, full of piss and vinegar and willing to, to push back against any idiot who wanted to say something. I, hey, I'm a country boy who grew up in the middle of the US. You, know, you need to shut up and go to hell was kind of my mentality. But how did that, how did you know 9-11 play into, you were what, about 14? I was 14, yeah, I was a freshman. Uh, I remember when 9-11 took place. On 9-11, I was uh, developing black and white film in a dark room and came out of said dark room in my high school. Uh, and like everyone, everyone, I guess, had forgotten that I was in there. So, so uh, I came out and they had the TV, you know, like on the little rolling cart situation and they're watching the, the you know, the broadcast. Uh, and I'm just like, I made a print, you know, like I had no idea. You know, look, I just made this print. Uh, and they were like, uh, look at the TV. At the time, my father was uh, an adjunct at Pace Downtown at One Pace Plaza. So um, I immediately was like, oh man, like this is insane. He is supposed to be at work right now. Like what's going on? Um, and because of my mother's illness, I was like an early cell phone adopter <laughs> for kids like my age. You know, that was like not the norm back in like, you know 2000 where they weren't as ubiquitous uh and so i'm like on my phone like trying to call my dad you know be like where are you are you there? and his phone's not nothing's connecting because all this you know everything was down um you know i mean i grew up about an hour outside of new york city so we're not far um you know and so you know i just remember frantically trying to get a hold of him finally got a hold of him he was fine he had for the like one of the five times in his life had decided not to go to work um that day because he had like he thought he had was getting a fever uh so he wasn't there so it was fine um but afterwards man uh yeah uh you know from snipe remarks about my last name since it's persian that was a thing obviously there were you know the uptick uh, and i was already getting bullied for the gay thing so people just kind of threw the brown thing in there uh for me it just kind of 
all sort of faded into background noise because I was like, okay, like I've been hearing this for a hot minute. You're just tacking something else on there. I don't really care. You know, you know what I mean? Um, so, you know, for 9-11, at least in my small town, um, being on the New York border, you know, it was a very jingoistic time. I mean, I, growing up in a household that is Persian, you study politics, uh, you know, a lot more than maybe your average bear, so to speak, um, because of the ramifications of CIA interventionism and all the different things we repeated as mistakes relative to 9-11 in Afghanistan. So, you know, when that all happened, I mean, I was a rather precocious sort of teenager, even at 13, where I had read a fair amount of books on, you know, the uh, Iranian revolution and the two-day party and the growth of communism within Iran through the Russians. You know, I had way too much information in certain ways um, relative to the, the geopolitical history of the Middle East. And so, uh, you know, when you have kids who are just parroting what they've been told to say at home uh, and then expressing it in sort of toxic ways, my response was always, okay, let me know when you find out the truth about the CIA. Like, let me know. Like, you know, uh, you wanna be racist, you're gonna be find a way to be racist. I, I, you know, and so, yeah, was there plenty of that? Sure, did I care? Not really, um, because these are the same people who, if they weren't being racist, they were being homophobic. So like, it, you know, it, you kind of, um, being a member of multiple marginalized groups uh, growing up, you just sort of, you know, people like to call it like, oh, grow a thick skin. It's not about having a thick skin at all. Um, it's about having discernment, you know, like what's the source of the nonsense? Is the source like a legitimate source that I should be understanding this feedback as, um, you know, critique or is the source some bullshit? If the source is bullshit, well, cool, write it off, it's over. I don't care, it doesn't bother me because I've already written it off. Um, definitely a key life skill my mother taught me where it's like if you if the other person hasn't earned the right to have an opinion then it just doesn't matter so I got very good at sort of writing it off uh which is probably why I don't remember a lot of specific incidents post 9-11 uh because there was always you know chatter of people just saying horrible shit um but I will also say that you know fast forward a couple of years my father was also the person who you know, when a chemistry teacher in our high school what, got cancer, he stepped in and taught her classes, even though he was highly overqualified to do so. Uh, you know, and people were like, oh, thanks for helping with chemistry, Dr. Gandron. And I'm like, oh, it's the same guy you called a terrorist two years ago, and now he's helping you pass chemistry. Okay. You know, uh, <laughs> kind of a thing. But you got to sort of ex not expect that. You shouldn't have to expect that. But I did at the time, knowing the culture we were growing up in. Uh, to say I, you got to expect it. No, now in 2021, you should not have to expect it. But in 2000, in, you know, the middle of the woods in Connecticut, yeah, that's kind of to be expected that there's going to be some shitty people saying some horrible stuff that you can either take to heart and let it eat away at you, or you should be like, okay, you're racist and or the same guy who says homophobic stuff. So for me, it was, um, it was just more of the same, but a different flavor. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, it, your story is wildly interesting. I mean, most people do have never dealt with the level of things that you had to deal with, especially with society kind of, you know, that some of the people in society really pushing against acceptance and finding your way through. And it sounds like you've kept a really great attitude all the way through it. But I, now I just want to step forward through time a little bit. Wh where have you come to now? What 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 did this turn into as a, a kid who was who had some physical ailments when in birth, adoption, um, international adoption, 
uh, some problems with with uh, with all the the race sort of things and, and people, you know, being um, racist and homophobic. All of that it, it all has kind of been put together into this neat little jar they shook up, and now you have created what in your world? Well, you know, I am creating the things that I wish I had had when I was ten and nine and eight and seven and six. Uh, I have sort of alchemized it all into my passion, which is called Little Red Fashion. We're the first children's fashion education technology and publishing company in history. Uh, we're the first solution for, you know, the grown-ups of kids who like fashion and want more information and want to learn about the industry from any number of angles. And we're the first company creating resources that use fashion for all kids as an intermediary lens to view everything from political science to STEM fields, to history, to literacy, to reading comprehension. So we're putting out uh, our first of 12 books that are you know, augmented reality enhanced in the first part of 2022. We also have another slate of about 10 non-AR activated uh, early chapter readers and we are putting together some really exciting education technology using um, extended reality. So VR, augmented reality, uh, and those sorts of things. Um, we have a couple other things up our sleeve that I can't talk about right now, otherwise my board will kill me. But rest assured, there's definitely some really exciting Internet of Things stuff coming down uh, the fashion history education side. Uh, and, you know, for me, ultimately, the idea is that we all wear clothes. And no matter what your family looks like, where they come from, what they're dealing with, clothing is something that almost everyone has at least one story or one person in their life that they relate to through clothing. It could be grandma, the smell of grandma's Chanel number no. five that to this day, like you peg it and like it smells just like her and you miss her and it's it's a thing. Or it could be that that one sweater that was give to you, given to you by an aunt or whatever it is. We tell stories through our clothing. And the idea with Little Red Fashion is that fashion is for everyone. And it's a way for us to learn both about ourselves and the world around us and build bridges of cultural uh, understanding, right? So our first book, The Little Red Dress, follows a dress as it goes through its life from sketch to sample to runway to showroom uh, to photo shoot. And then it gets packed away, has an existential crisis in its box, gets taken down 20 years later and then gets fixed up, taken to a consignment store, picked up by a museum curator who finds it in the consignment shop and finally ends up in an exhibition in a museum. Uh, and, you know, this idea of a dress telling a story of triumph, of being feeling underappreciated, underunderstood, and then, you know, coming to life later in life and having this finally being seen and appreciated for who and what this dress is, um, I think it's a really powerful story. Some of our earliest uh, supporters have really pointed to the fact that it's a great, yes, it's about a dress, but it's also about being confident in your inner beauty and then knowing that in the right circumstances, that will shine through and people will see that and will appreciate you for who you are exactly as you are. And so, with the rest of the series, the whole idea is that we're using fashion and dovetailing those lessons about the industry with other things. So our second title, The Little Red Kit, is all about soccer kits and this Timon and Pumbaa style story of two best friends. One of them has cerebral palsy and he doesn't play, but he loves soccer. 
And then his best friend is like the star on the pitch who's super talented. And there are, you know, they become friends because they start trading jerseys and they see each other in like each other's jerseys. And, uh, you know, it dives into their whole journey, both as friends. Uh, and then eventually at the end as business partners, because they open a sportswear apparel company uh, to make kits. Uh, and, and really the idea, again, that book is all about allyship, all about teaching kids, you know, um, if you have a friend that's getting bullied for something, this is how you could stand up for them. This is how you should be treating people who have a different life journey than you, um, this kind of a thing. Yes, it's about fashion. Yes, it's fashion education, but it's also about life lessons and, and, and dovetailing those together. I, I view our job uh, sort of like a broker. Our job is to help families broker conversations about these things using fashion and clothing and dress and adornment as the intermediary. Well, first off, I'm going to say it was not Chanel number five. It was white diamonds. Ah, <laughs> my I, mom was a Chanel number five person. <laughs> yeah, the but thing I do remember. love the smell of white diamonds, too. I, I had an aunt named Pearl and she loved white diamonds, ironically enough for someone named Pearl. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that that's the one and and you're right because that's that's the as soon as she's mentioned that i thought yep i know the name of the fragrance now anybody who knows me knows that my fashion game is not on point um i'm really good with um a t-shirt and a pair of jeans um i i i just i was never raised but in I that bet you have a favorite t-shirt hmm do you have a favorite t-shirt do you have a t-shirt that when you were younger it was like the t-shirt I don't think I did. I don't think, but we also grew up in a very weird world. I grew up in a, in a uh, very fundamentalist uh, um, Christian religious group that I'm not supposed to call a cult anymore. I'm told. Um, but yeah, so, so fashion around that was, was basically you had to be plain that uh, if you're right. Modesty, modesty, fashion, we do have a title. That's all about modesty, fashion, actually modesty, fashion culture is equally as important as you know, uh, the traditional Western fashion system uh, and all that. So, you know, even when you, that's the tricky thing about fashion, even when you don't think of yourself as a fashion person or like engaged with it, sorry to break it to most people, but guess what? You're part of it anyway, mazel tov, you know? <laughs> yeah, and most, most of that was pushed down in our culture and so that the, in, in the groups that I grew up in. And so the things that, that I found myself attracted to, if it was not, exactly like everybody else was wearing and the most modest sort of thing then then it was really shut down and, and we weren't allowed mm -hmm. to express ourselves through that way and i think a lot of people grew up that way as well because yeah. you know and i'm not here to rail against you know, any religions or religious people or anything like that i definitely not but i do know that there, there's a lot of parts and pieces of that that um i can tell you that i do not like blue jean skirts and it has nothing to do with anybody listening if you happen to have one on i'm sorry i'm not talking to you i'm talking to a certain handful of people in my past in my life that that i think i have a little bit of a a little bit of a past history around that that there's a reason i do not care for those anymore um my wife doesn't even own any even though she says she likes them uh but she knows my thoughts about that but it <laughs> i like the way you you talk about the story of the dress and how that that makes such a great metaphor for the life that we all live and the the struggles we go all go through finding our own worth our own existential crisis I think as you put it because it's it's real and as kids who have been adopted or kids who came through those traumas a lot of that is is real trauma that that they have looked right. at themselves as being worthless or less than or not enough and that is what creates a lot of those hard places for people to, to deal with. So I love the, the, the idea yeah. of using that story as a metaphor. 
What, yeah, where, absolutely. Well, you know, uh, it just came out of me. And as a result, you know, it wasn't something that I, wasn't something that I explicitly tried to put into it. But then after like the fourth or fifth draft, I was like, oh, this is, it's kind of worked its way in there as an implied thesis without me meaning to, uh, you, you know what I mean? And then, and then sort of, and rest assured, there was like 12 more uh, drafts after that. <laughs> so once I sort of caught on to that, then I sort of ran with it where while I was finessing parts, I was like, okay, let's make sure we keep this through line um, because, you know, there are so many traumas that those of us who are in the foster care system or have been adopted go through that sometimes get lost. And what I mean by that is oftentimes when I hear dialogue about adoption from people that are not adoptees or from people that have adopted kids themselves, I've heard this, you know, oh, well, the question of gratitude comes up. Oh, but they, they should be so grateful that that this happened. Yes, but asterisk, some restrictions may apply. For one thing, just because someone adopted you does not mean that they have the right to abuse you, gaslight you, stunt your emotional or social biopsychosocial development. Um, and the what I find sort of challenging about the discourse around adoption is that oftentimes the needs, the self-articulated needs of adoptees get silenced a little bit because they should, we should be grateful. We should just be happy that we got adopted. We should be happy that we're no longer in XYZ situation. And my hope uh, with the Little Red Dress, with any of our stories is that again, we can broker more conversations. Maybe after reading the book, uh, a kid who's been adopted can say, Oh, I felt like the dress when the dress was the dress's name is Michelle, by the way. Uh, the style name of the dress. Uh, you know, I I I felt like Michelle when she was in the box, and I didn't know when I was going to get you know adopted and taken off the shelf, so to speak. Uh, and I you know felt a certain kind of way. Maybe through reading this book with an adopted child, it'll shed light on some of these sort of lesser seen facets of just adoptee consciousness. Maybe. It won't be this book. Maybe it'll be the little red T-shirt, and you know our shirt, of, our story about a, a about a T-shirt that goes through uh, the recycling center and meets other shirts that were not made as sustainably, and maybe uh, were made in the global south in less than ideal conditions, and that's how the T-shirt learns about, you know, um, human slavery <laughs> based on the the you know our supply chain, fast fashion, uh, and overconsumption, and I think that. For those of us who are adopted uh, or have been through the foster care system now as adults, what I think is great about your show and shows like it is that more stories are finally coming to light. I think for a long time, um, you know, it wasn't until podcasts really that adoptees and people who've been through the system as it were um, really get to tell our own stories. You know, oftentimes our stories are always told through some form of an intermediary whether it's we're a success story for the orphanage or we're a success story for so-and-so social worker, but we ourselves don't usually articulate a, a narrative. Um, and my thing, uh, and I say this especially to prospective adoptee parent, adoptive parents, is the best thing you can do for your kid that is uh, adopted, if you have adopted someone, is constantly check in with yourself and put yourself in our shoes 
when it comes to the language that you use around, surrounding our place in your family, it should always be just a given that we are part of the family. There should never be a, you should be grateful that, you should, you know, I did this for you, therefore X, Y, Z. Um, because I know some of the most damaging things that were ever said to me, not by my parents, but by peripheral adults, were things like, you must be so glad that they did all this for you. Um, let's be real. Being a parent is a choice. It's a beautiful choice, but it's a choice. And when we use language like you should be grateful for, or if they did not adopt you, or whatever it might be, for a kid, that puts us in a really shitty headspace where if our parent or you know, parental figure is doing something wrong, or in the case of, you know, in, in my situation, maybe being really homophobic or doing things that are otherwise psychologically damaging and traumatic, that kind of language makes it much easier for us in the moment as children to say, how I feel about this doesn't matter because I should just be grateful that I'm not still in that orphanage. And we're maybe less likely to then express that because we don't feel like we have a right to, because we should just take the crumbs we were handed, so to speak. Um, and so just like language, I think is the biggest thing that if I had a time machine and I could like go back and tap certain adults on the shoulder when I was a kid after they found I was adopted, I'd be like, maybe you shouldn't say that. Maybe that's damaging um, because it, 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 language matters. Absolutely. And, and over the last, you know, oh, about 13 years or so that we've been an adoptive family, some of the things that I've heard other people say are, are so challenging to uh, to deal with in a polite and kind way yeah. uh, because honestly we, sure. didn't, we didn't have it all figured out at the beginning i'm certain we did lots of it wrong but you know we've adopted um what four four kids now and three of them have mixed heritage and one friend of mine and again i'm in the midwest and we're kind of a rural setting out here and i had one friend of mine who who leaned over when he met my kids at first and they were very young and he says is he half black he says it real quiet in my ear and I looked at him and, and I couldn't help but mess with the guy a little bit and just look at him and say, no, no, he's, he's half white. Just to kind of, kind of like illustrate, like what, what kind of a ridiculous question is that? Right. I mean, come on. How about he's a human? Right. Exactly. And I think, you know, it's funny because before I knew I was adopted, I probably tuned all of that out and I'm sure that other things were said that I just didn't even register, but then after I knew I was adopted, I was like, oh, okay, okay, you know? Um, I think it boils down ultimately to the fact that none of us are responsible for policing anyone else's identity. And for adult adoptees, for adolescent adoptees, all that we should be thinking about is how do we best empower them to explore their own identities on their own terms, in their own ways that resonate with them and leave them feeling built up rather than torn down. I love that. I love that. Um, I, I do have one quick question though. I know we're, we're kind of bumping on the edge of our time we have here available today, but I want to make sure that we, we talk about where that, where people can find you and find, find your books. Sure. Uh, so you can find everything Little Red Fashion at littleredfashion.com where you can sign up for our saucy little newsletter. And if you are an Instagram person, you can absolutely find us there at Little Red Fashion Co. C-O, 
Little Red Fashion Co. Um, we have a wonderful in-house fashion historian, Rachel Elspeth, who manages our Instagram. And every Thursday, uh, we interview industry professionals asking them their favorite books, what advice they give kids that are interested in what they do as part of our I Can Do That interview series, which in 2022, I will be joining your ranks as a podcaster because we will be shifting to a, uh, to a podcast format, which should be really exciting as well. And when you head to our website, you can hit the shop button and you can pre-order your copy of The Little Red Dress. Uh, it ships in February and uh, I'm very excited to share it with everyone. Ultimately, we are here to, as an independent, you know, book publisher, we are a member of the Independent Book Publishers Association, and as such, you know, um, I really, really, really appreciate everyone who buys any of our books, and I will say this, if you're interested in getting free books to kids, uh, particularly children whose uh, classrooms have either opted into our program or who are children who are unfortunately in a children's hospital, and as a kid with CP, I spent fair amount of time hooked up to lots of electrodes in children's hospitals so god bless them all there's ones in every state uh we are working on our little red literacy program to provide free copies of little red dress to kids in need whether uh, again their schools have opted in to our program to receive classroom sets or uh individually through children's hospitals as well that's uh been fiscally sponsored through the field which is an awesome new york city-based arts organization and if you go to the field nyc.com i want to say that's them or the field.org uh, and just search Little Red Literacy, you can do your part to help get free books to kids who need them. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we will make sure that we uh, we get all the links we can. We'll get links to the books thrown into the show notes so people can find it. And I am currently in the process of figuring out how to keep all the books that um, people have written on the our authors who we had on the podcast, get their books listed on our resources on our website. Um, as it turns out, I am not much of a webmaster. So what what people can't see is that right here in front of me on my desk, there's a forehead shaped dent with me learning how to build a website. <laughs> it is quite the challenge if it's you're a not journey. a webmaster. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. And especially when you have a 60 hour a week job and, and kids and, and little ones. And yeah, it's, it's taken me a while to get it all figured out, but it's, it's just starting to come to fruition. As a matter of fact, I got a bunch of it done this last weekend. So um, oh, that's awesome. all I have to figure out how to, how to get that all up there so that, so that people can find it nice and easy. And we'll have all of your links as well. Um, I, I found all of your social media links. And so I'll have them listed as well. So people can find you there as well. So I just want to, I want to tell you, man, that I've known a lot of people who've had a lot of struggles in their life, who've come through genuinely hard places and I haven't known many of them to come out of those genuinely hard places to have as positive of an attitude and such a bright look at the future as what you have. And so, oh, thank you, dude, that, that that's hard for people to, to get to. So I, I love the fact that you're there and I really appreciate that you're willing to come out here and tell your story to the world and talk about those hard places and show others that they have the opportunity to get to the same place where you're at. That's ultimately what it's really about. That last part right there, because for better or worse, I was given the gift of gab, so I better use it to help other people while I'm here. I'm glad I'm not the only one who has that same gift. My wife has <laughs> reminded me of that a number of times, and um, that's actually the reason why we have a podcast. <laughs> and it's a good match then. There you go. I love it. <laughs> well, thank you well, so thank much Thank you for your so time. much. Oh, no, absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of your listeners as well. Um, feel free to hit me up at Little Red Fashion Co. if you guys have any further questions. Okay, Foster Care Nation. 
Thank you for listening to Jonathan's story. Now take his knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have an account over at Buy Me A Coffee. It's like a virtual tip jar where you can help us fund our mission for as little or as much as you want. It's at buymeacoffee.com slash fostercare. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. So cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled oh, Studios. Studios. <laughs>